You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, If we haven't met, my name's Jamie, one of the pastor elders here. Uh, Excited to most weeks open up the scriptures with you all uh, this morning, entering into the season of of Advent. For me, I don't know about you guys, uh, when you you, uh, experience that first moment of it feels like Christmas time. Uh, But for me, uh, usually uh, we're early decorators. I know that creates controversy in the church that day that you begin to throw the Christmas decorations up. Hopefully our study of Galatians set the stage for the gospel to hold that together too. But for me this year, it's been strange. It's felt like there's been a delay or a a lag, a feeling sense that it's not yet Christmas. And it wasn't until we uh, jumped into Old Holy Night just now a few moments ago that I felt like Christmas time is here. Uh, and, and my heart's happy about that. Season of Advent. Uh, many of you know this. If you've been around our church for some time or you grew up in a church that uh, maybe was more liturgical in nature, uh, this is a season that's been celebrated by the church dating all the way back to the fourth century. Roughly the past 1,700 years, the church has been doing this, this thing called Advent. Uh, the, the word Advent derived from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. A season meant to focus our attention, uh, as you know, on the coming of Jesus into the world, the joyful celebration of his first coming, and the hopeful anticipation and longing for his second coming. Assuming that it hasn't already, my guess is that it's about to get incredibly busy for many of us. There are gifts to buy, there are movies to get in before Christmas Day, there are traditions to uphold, and by God's grace, a fresh outpouring of his spirit to be received. That's the hope of Advent, the living God breaking in and breaking through, awakening our hearts to the beauty and wonder of who he is and what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do for us in Jesus Christ, revealing to us yet again with childlike wonder the beauty of Christmas, helping us to see beyond all the tinsel and wrapping, though those things good as they are, in celebration of the greatest gift of all, Emmanuel, God with us. A God who's not removed from the story he's authoring and telling, having entered into that very story as its most significant character. A God so moved to bring redemption to a lost and dying world uh, that he became flesh, that he might bear our sins in his body on the tree. A God who, as we sing every year, rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and wonders of his love. My prayer for us in the days to come is that an advent would occur, like real time, right now, that God would break in on us with new surprises, that he would touch us with a renewing and restoring power, that he would awaken our hearts to a feeling sense of both deepest joy and deepest longing as we look back on the many promises fulfilled in Jesus' first coming and look ahead to the many promises that will be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming all the while recognizing the the beauty of his redemptive work, even now as we find ourselves in the already and not yet time in between. And so with that, I invite you to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. We're gonna open up to this chapter each and every week of this series, 
this something of a launching passage this morning, verses 38, 39. We'll jump to verse 41. I'll explain why we're skipping verse 40 next week as we uh, dive into the second week of this Advent season. But we're not going to stay there long. This is, this is more of a, a biblical theology, which simply means kind of a story-formed telling of a particular theme or topic in Scripture going from creation to the fall to redemption to restoration in the end. And so we're going to move all over the Bible this morning, and I trust that our hearts will be encouraged as we, as we do that. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump in and get to work this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love in Christ Jesus, that you sent your Son into the world the hope of the incarnation, which we celebrate with great emphasis this time of year, recognizing that the cradle was leading to a cross all along. Jesus, thank you for living the life that we couldn't live, for dying the death that we deserve to die. We're rising from the grave, conquering our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Christmas is not just the story of a cradle leading to a cross, but a cross leading to a crown, so that right now you are seated at the right hand of the Father. You've sent your Holy Spirit to indwell us. You will someday return to set all things right. O come, O come, Emmanuel. I pray that as we experience what it is to live in the time between the two Advents, that we would be encouraged Yes and amen to the the gifts of Christmas past as we look back to your first coming. Yes and amen to the gifts of Christmas future as we look to your second coming. But yes and amen to the gifts of Christmas present as you are with us and moving and working in redemptive ways even now. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of all of this as we sit with your inspired word in front of us. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus, our rescuer, our savior, our king, our treasure. Amen. So theologians for several generations have spoken of Jesus' threefold office as it pertains to his messianic role in this great story of redemption, namely the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, all of which these themes we find weaved throughout the scriptures. As stated in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 31, why is he, that is Jesus, called Christ, that is anointed? And the answer to that question Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Jesus the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. All three of which we see in the one and same passage in the Apostle John's writing to the seven churches. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. John says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, here it is, the faithful witness, prophet, the firstborn of the dead, priest, and the ruler of kings on earth king. 
Right? More explicitly, we see Jesus himself in the gospel accounts give reference to these offices throughout his public ministry. In fact, we see all three referenced in Matthew chapter 12, where I had you open up this morning to begin with. In the case of prophet, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39, and skipping ahead to verse 41, says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, that is the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of the prophet Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus here declaring himself to be the prophet greater than Jonah, recognizing himself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament office of prophet. In the unfolding story of redemptive history, a prophet was to be God's mouthpiece to the people, which is why we see over and over again throughout scripture that the proclamation of a prophet oftentimes begins with the words, thus says the Lord. At times proclaiming, Words of indictment in the midst of covenant rebellion, calling covenant-breaking sinners to repentance, at times proclaiming words of forgiveness and restoration, even if on the other side of exile. The office of prophet, going back further in redemptive history than one might, upon initial consideration, be inclined to think. All the way back to the story of creation, in fact, as Adam was the very first prophet, priest, and king which we'll explore in in the threefold sense in the weeks to come. This morning, focusing our attention on the office of prophet specifically. Again, the the role of a prophet to speak God's words to God's people. So how is it that that Adam was the first prophet? I mean, after all, the, the words prophet, priest, and king are not explicitly found in the first few chapters of the Genesis story. Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 we're told that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it and the Lord God commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die notice that that God gives this destiny shaping command before Eve enters the story Meaning that it was Adam's responsibility as prophet to speak God's words to his bride. That she might know to abstain from the one tree from which God commanded his image bearers not to eat. A command that Eve, in fact, recites when tempted by the serpent. Though not without her own adaptation and adding that the tree mustn't even be touched. Nonetheless, implying that somewhere along the way, Uh, Adam proclaimed to his wife the command that God had given him. And yet we come to learn that Adam later failed as prophet as he stood by his wife in the moment of her temptation and failed to speak God's truth. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. He was right there beside her. The revealed word and will of God rejected for a lie in that moment. It's one of the many evidences helping to explain why it was that Adam And not Eve was held responsible for the fall when sin entered the garden. Cast out of the garden they were. 
as prophet, Adam should have spoken God's truth when the serpent whispered his words of deception, but he failed in his role as prophet. Sin and suffering entering the world. In that casting out of the, the garden, our first parents were left to grasp at meaning and purpose should God not reveal himself. Right? The first prophet, having failed to speak, now desperate for the Lord himself to speak. And speak God did, as we go on to read later in Genesis chapter 3, not only pronouncing a curse upon our first parents and with that a curse upon the deceiving serpent, but two, in pronouncing the hope of and promise of a rescuer, a true and better prophet to succeed where Adam failed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A Messiah. The word Messiah simply meaning anointed one. Right, many of us perhaps familiar with the language of anointing as it pertains to priests and kings in the biblical story, and yet prophets were too anointed in their roles. Right, one example being the Lord's command that Elijah anoint Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Maloha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. There's an example of the anointing of a prophet. In his song of thanks, David declares to Israel, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 19 through 22, when you were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, that is the land of Canaan, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he, the Lord, allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, here it is, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. The prophets of the Old Testament were anointed, or in the lowercase sense of the term, they were messiahed. The first prophet outside the garden explicitly stated as such in scripture being Abraham declared by God himself to be a prophet in God's warning to Abimelech to return Sarah to her husband, Abraham. Genesis chapter 20, verse seven says, now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Some make good arguments that perhaps Noah was a prophet, a preacher of righteousness. And there, there is some explicit uh, detail there that we can kind of dig into, but we can surely say that the first prophet outside the garden explicitly stated as such in scripture was Abraham. If you fast forward to the story of the Exodus, Moses' uh, leading of God's people out of Egyptian enslavement, there you have the Israelites on the verge of entering the promised land, and God warns them of a, a number of abominable practices among the pagan nations in the efforts of those nations to obtain information or revelation from the gods. It's a wicked distortion of the office of prophet. In the case of the pagan nations, through divination and sorcery, through mediums consulting the world of the spirits like the witch of Endor. Again, all of these abominable practices, not the way God reveals himself and his will to his people. Moses declaring in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 20, this is how God reveals himself. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die." As we know, God raised up many prophets throughout the unfolding story of the Old Testament. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jonah, and Malachi, so many others who spoke words of warning to covenant-rebelling Israel, two to pagan nations like Nineveh, at times leading to repentance, more often than not to a failure to listen like our first parents in the garden. Two, God's prophets proclaiming words of forgiveness and restoration, again, even if on the other side of exile. Many of those prophets, as we read in the Old Testament, having suffered greatly for proclaiming the truth of God's revealed word. And yet none of them could bring about the true and lasting redemption. None of them the prophet that Moses described in Deuteronomy 18, who like Moses would speak face to face with God like Moses, would perform many signs and wonders. None of them the second Adam, the serpent-crushing true and better prophet. The Old Testament closing with 400 years of the darkness of prophetic silence. That is, until Christ came. The light entering the darkness of our broken world in the humble trappings of a smelly stable Surrounded by blue-collar field workers, pagan astrologers, Gentile court magicians. For unto us is born a prophet, the true and better prophet. The one for whom John the Baptist, the prophet in the wilderness, would prepare the way. He who, like the prophets of old, would receive his own anointing. Luke chapter 18, Jesus himself says it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor the anointing of the true and faithful prophet who would go on to astonish many with his teaching, his word possessing divine authority as the son of God. As Jesus didn't simply quote the rabbis and teachers who came before him like many in his day did, but rather he spoke on his own authority, the very incarnation of truth, proclaiming the truth in power, declaring not thus says the Lord, but truly, truly, I say to you, As the author of Hebrews begins his writing, Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God's ultimate and final message to mankind, calling sinners to repentance and belief in him heralding the good news of redemption, the forgiveness of sin that can only be found in him. Succeeding where Adam failed in proclaiming God's revealed word to the devil during his wilderness temptation. 
to the, the many healings and exorcisms in the Gospels, not only revealing to us the power of Christ in his office of king, but to the authority of Christ in his office of prophet. As those healings and exorcisms, they came by virtue of his authoritative word. The prophet greater than Moses and Elijah and Elisha, who had all performed so many wondrous miracles in their own day. So that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, verse 19, would go on to declare Jesus to be a prophet mighty in both word and deed. More than that, speaking not only God's words as the, the true and greater prophet, but the very revelation of God himself. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says it this way. He says, Christ is not a prophet only by the words he speaks, but primarily by what he is. Meaning that when we talk about Jesus as prophet, we're not simply talking about Jesus as a good moral teacher or pithy philosopher. No, Jesus is God revealed, Emmanuel, God with us. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature as we're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As stated in the Nicene Creed, light from light, true God from God. Consider the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appeared a couple of redemptive history's most well-renowned prophets. Peter declaring to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. God the Father declaring right after those words, in that moment, not these are my beloved sons, plural, but rather this is my beloved son. Jesus, he's divinely different. The father declaring on that mountain, listen to him. Moses having declared, again, going back to Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus, the, the fulfillment of the promises of the prophets of old, his words ringing forth with the resounding authority of the divine. And yet, as many of you know, sadly, many in Jesus' day failed to listen to him so that Jesus too would suffer like many of the prophets of old, rejected, betrayed, ultimately crucified. From the cradle to the cross, the story of Christmas is that Jesus was born to die. A prophet unwelcome in his own hometown, more than that, unwelcome in this darkened world of sin. And yet consider this, that even in his death, he exercised his office of prophet. The cross itself, more than a place of sacrifice, more than an altar, as we'll see next week when we focus on Jesus's office of priest. The cross of Christ, surely an altar, but to a pulpit, proclaiming Romans 3, the love and justice of God. Proclaiming 1 Corinthians 1, the power and wisdom of God. 
the empty tomb, proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. He who is now seated on the throne of heaven, upholding the universe by what? By the word of his power. And who will someday return to set all things right with a word. Exercising his office of prophet yet again. When he shall proclaim to some, depart from me, I never knew you. To others, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. On that day, his word, possessing a divine authority as the son of God, the true and better prophet. More than that, on that day, God revealed, just as with the first advent, Emmanuel, God with us, when he will be just as visible and real as he was when he came to lowly Bethlehem. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right? This too, part of the story of, of Christmas, the new and glorious morn of the second advent. Which leaves us with a question this morning. Namely, what about now? I mean, we often talk about Jesus in the present exercising his office as priest, right? Right? our great high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. We often talk about Jesus in the present exercising his office of king and ruling and reigning even now over all of creation. Getting into it here. But what about his office of prophet? Is this an office that he too exercises even now? And, and the answer is yes. Right? There are gifts under the tree this very day as it pertains to Jesus' office of prophet. For one, he speaks to us even now through his spirit, by his word. In the words of one writer, Scripture is not just God-breathed, but God-breathing. As the author of Hebrews declares, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is fascinating. The author of Hebrews here is quoting Psalm 95. He's quoting scripture. But notice that he doesn't say that the Holy Spirit said, but rather that the Holy Spirit says. Meaning that the Spirit is still saying Psalm 95 today. The word of God living and active. As the author of Hebrews says elsewhere. So that, and be encouraged by this, when we sit with our Bibles in front of us, whether in times of personal devotion or in gathering together with others, Jesus is exercising his office of prophet in speaking to us by his word through his spirit. Two, Jesus speaks to us by the mouths of men through the preaching of the word. One of the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. In the words of the Puritan Thomas Cartwright, as the fire stirred giveth more heat, so the word, as it were, were blown, as it were blown by preaching, flameth more in the hearers than when it is read. Which is not at all to diminish the reading of the word, but rather to highlight the beauty of Christ exercising his office of prophet in the preaching of the word. Right, what we need 
is not thus says the world or thus says the whispers of the enemy. What we need is thus says the Lord. What we need this Christmas and what we've been given is a prophet. Jesus, the true capital P prophet and divine son of God who speaks his living and active word to us. Lifting the veil from our eyes that we might see in his face the light of the knowledge of God's glory. He who doesn't just speak God's word, but who is God's word. The manger, consider this, just as empty today as the tomb. And yet, Christ is present with us even now. By his word, by his spirit. In the words of one writer, We may not have touched his swaddling cloths or heard his newborn cries, but we have everything we need to experience him. His sensible signs are bread and wine. His voice resounds from a pulpit and a page. Coming back to question 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? That's question 31 of the catechism. Question 32, and why are you called a Christian? The answer to that question, because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may as prophet confess his name as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. As believers, we've We've been anointed to confess his name. We who have heard and believed the gospel must not be silent, but must ourselves go and tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. Calling people to repent of their sin and to believe in him. Teaching and admonishing one another by God's grace and for God's glory. As we steep ourselves in the word of God and sit often under the preaching of that word. Trusting Jesus to exercise his office of prophet in illuminating our minds and awakening our hearts to the beauty of his glorious revelation. As we prepare to continue to worship him this morning, we have an opportunity to bring our collective voice, the sung word, to sing this truth that's been revealed to us Again, we fight hard to pair the sung word with the preached word, to tether ourselves to scripture so that the lyrics that you're about to sing are God's revealed word, the truth of God's word. I trust that we'll be encouraged as we sit with divine revelation in front of us that we haven't been left to human speculation. But God has given us what we need. 
We have the canon of scripture. And we leave this place. We have God's word that we can go to and run to. And listen, I understand that that there can be discouragement in sitting and opening up the word and going, I'm not feeling something here right now. Or as I was talking with someone before the service, well, I've already missed a few Advent readings. We're imperfect human beings, but Christ is not an imperfect prophet. Let's go to him. Let's trust in him. Let's ask him for the grace we need as we sit with his word open in front of us. It is a gift. We have an opportunity to receive a Lord's Supper before we scatter this morning. Between now and uh, the benediction, whenever you're ready, you can come receive of the bread and the cup. If you're not a Christian, we'd encourage you not to do so, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, recognizing that we could never uh, span that gap between us and God, his holiness and our sin, that Jesus had to come down. He had to come to us to bridge that gap. That's the beauty of the story of Christmas. If you are a Christian, as many of you know, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations on either side of the stage and a gluten-free table in the back corner there. As you prepare to receive of those elements, I would just read again the words of one writer. We may not have touched his swaddling cloths or heard his newborn cries, but we have everything we need to experience him. His sensible signs are bread and wine. His voice resounds from, a, resounds from a pulpit and a page. Be encouraged this morning, church. See, see those as gifts from God, presence under the tree. Let's express our gratitude for the many gifts that are ours in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.